Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Three New England states passed laws mandating labeling for genetically engineered food. The federal government came in with its own standards. So where does that leave anti-GMO advocates? I think we're talking about things that are invisible here. You cannot see what is a GMO with your naked eye, nor can you smell it or taste it. And nor can a monarch butterfly, and nor can a bee. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankowski. We'll get the latest on the effort to find out how our food is made. We'll also visit an innovative policing program that changes the relationship between police and addicts. Police officers should have some sort of knowledge about mental illness and substance abuse. And we'll meet Miles Standish, the Pilgrim's brave hero, and the Native American's brutal villain. I'm a soldier by trade. Courage and bravery are the ability to act, even though one is afraid. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankowski. When you sit down to Thanksgiving dinner, chances are good that the turkey on your table was raised on corn grown from GMO seeds, seeds that were genetically engineered in a lab to be resistant to pests or weed killer. Now, should you be concerned about this? In a 2014 Pew poll, just 37% of American adults said they think that genetically modified foods are safe for human consumption. But in that same poll, 88% of scientists connected to the American Association for the Advancement of Science said, Yes, GMOs are safe to eat. There's a great deal of support for the right to know if your food contains GMOs, especially here in New England. Vermont passed a law in 2014 that would require text labels on GMO foods. The states of Maine and Connecticut followed suit. But just after Vermont's law took effect this summer, President Obama signed a federal law that nullifies Vermont's law. It requires GMO foods to be labeled with a code that can be scanned with a smartphone. Joining me now to discuss some of the science and policy behind GMOs is Kathleen Masterson. She covers the environment for Vermont Public Radio. Kathleen, welcome back to Next. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. So first of all, explain to us what exactly is a, a GMO, and is that even the right term for it? It's a good question. And GMO stands for genetically modified organism, and that's kind of the term that took hold in um, in the popular conversation. But scientists say a more accurate term would be genetically engineered, because uh, genetically modified indicates that we've been changing genes, and we've been doing that for crops throughout history, just the way humans, you know, even back before agriculture was standardized, humans picking different foods and spreading those seeds influence plants. So genetically engineered does have a more concrete definition, um, and that's usually seen is inserting a foreign gene into a plant. There's a couple of ways you can do it. You can use a, a gene gun that's literally shooting some metal in um, that has DNA on it. Or uh, more commonly is using bacteria that already naturally out in the environment, they insert foreign DNA into plants. Uh, scientists have just har harnessed those so they can put DNA that they want to go into a plant into this naturally existing bacteria. And then that goes and modifies crops. And can you give us a couple of examples of, of uh, GE foods that we might know? 
Yeah, two of the most common ones are certainly we've, we've heard of corn. And just to clarify here, we're talking about field corn, not sweet corn. So if you buy corn in the summer, that has not been genetically engineered uh, typically. That's that's just sort of a standard um, conventionally breeded crop. But when we talk about what we feed animals and what we see in corn syrup and things that are ending up in our food um, as oils and processed uh, soybean oil, for example, those are coming from two very common genetically engineered crops. One of those is uh, Roundup-resistant corn. And that has a gene that's from an agrobacteria, and we've put that into corn so that farmers can spray Roundup all over that crop and everything else dies, but the corn is genetically engineered to resist the Roundup. Another common one is BT corn, and that is where the plant actually has been genetically engineered to contain a bacteria gene called BT, uh, and that's a commonly used pesticide. So some scientists have genetically engineered corn, so it produces that pesticide on its own, so they don't actually have to spray um, to kill insects. So what you've been covering in Vermont is not necessarily a movement to get rid of GMO foods, but to start by at least labeling these foods, letting people know what crops are grown with GMO and which ones aren't. Maybe you can explain to us what was in this Vermont law that then later got trumped by the federal government. So the Vermont law went into effect July 1st, and it basically said any uh, food that contained a plant ingredient that had been genetically engineered was required to have a label saying produced with or produced partially with genetic engineering. There are some food products that have that label that they put on that label preemptively preparing for Vermont law. All this really became moot, though, Kathleen, after the federal government stepped in, right? That's exactly right. Even before Vermont's law went into effect this past summer, July 1st, there was sort of a general scramble across the country. Certainly, Vermont was sued by the Grocery Manufacturers Association and some other big agricultural entities that were against the law, I think in part out of uh, fear that it would affect you know, consumer consumption of, of their products. And even as that was happening, Congress was working on one law that would have made uh, Vermont's law nullified and made GMO labeling voluntary. But two weeks after Vermont's law passed and went into effect, Congress actually passed a law that nullified Vermont's law and replaced it with their own labeling law, which many critics have called inadequate and, and not nearly as strict or as clear of a label. Can you explain how it would be less strict or maybe a weaker law than the one that Vermont had passed? Sure. Well, one of the big parts that's still being worked out is the law basically wrote in that, that manufacturers could meet the labeling law in multiple ways. One of those being they could have a symbol on there, which would, again, not, not yet determined by the USDA. And they could have language on there, as Vermont's law outlines. And then thirdly, they could also have a QR code, which is that scannable code you can read with your smartphone. They are required in the federal law, they wrote in that they have to do a study of that QR code to see if that would actually be a viable label, because as many pro-label folks have already jumped on the federal law saying that's that rules out more than half the country, people in rural areas with no internet access, um, people who can't afford a smartphone, would then not be able to read that label. And the other thing that it does practically is it really slows down this whole labeling process. If there's studies on this QR code and there's still a lot of debate about what this is going to look like, it means that the the real impact of a nationwide uh, GE labeling law won't be felt for some time. 
That's exactly right. The USDA has two years to put together, um, you know, what acceptable labels might look like under this federal law. And and now having a new president elect, they certainly may not be able to change that time frame, but things, frankly, may just go slower as officials are moving in and positions are changing. We'll have more from Kathleen Masterson in just a minute. But first, writer Caitlin Shetterly suffered for years with a series of puzzling symptoms, constant colds, tingling, numbness, rashes, and body pain and weakness. She tried every treatment she could find with no relief. That's when an allergist recommended she try eliminating GMO corn from her diet. She did so, and she got better. That's what set Shetterly off on a journey, interviewing farmers, scientists, and activists. It led to a recent book, Modified, GMOs and the Threat to Our Food, Our Land, Our Future. Caitlin Shetterly joined us from the studios of Maine Public Radio in Portland. She said the chemicals used with GMO crops are a greater concern than the GMOs themselves. I think the biggest issue in the revelation of my book is that the GMO itself is one thing, but the point is it's the pesticides. There's been an enormous uptick in the amount of pesticides we're using. We're not even talking about the neonicotinoids, which are seed treatments, which all of these seeds are treated with. And a lot of these chemical pesticides are known endocrine disruptors, known carcinogens. This uh, entire world has been shrouded a bit in terms of available scientific study. I know that a lot of the country saw a report from the National Academy of Sciences earlier this year that essentially said that GMOs are safe to eat. I guess I'm wondering where you found your science that you feel contradicts some of what the NAS and and a, a large group of scientists who've studied GMOs around the world have found. Yeah, so the NAS report was really interesting. They actually said, based on the science that's available to them, their assumption is that they're safe. They're they're looking at the the science that has been done. We should also mention that the Natural Resources Council and the Food and Water Watch actually found that that. Uh, the National Academy of Science takes millions in funding from biotech sponsors like Monsanto for corporate research. So when it was analyzed, a lot of that study, that, that compendium that came out in the spring, appeared to be tainted for sure. Now, that brings me to the next point, which is that the science that is available and out there for you and me to see is industry-funded. I interviewed a guy... Um, a few times named Bruce Chassie, who um, Eric Lipton wrote about in the New York Times, a terrific piece last fall. Um, it was a, after the U.S. Right to Know campaign um, got a FOIA and got some emails. They found that two scientists, a guy named Kevin Folta and Bruce Chassie, had actually received perks and funding, uh, if not outright payment, from Monsanto to go out and tell the American people that there was nothing wrong with GMOs and also to pressure the EPA on rolling back regulation on pesticides like glyphosate, like Roundup. So, but get back to, to me, if you would, on yes. where you're, you're getting your science that backs this up, because in, in the absence of, as you say, scientific study that yeah. is divorced from any influence by big industry, um, where is anybody finding any science that says, no, we know for sure that these GMO crops in one way or the other are harming us? There's one study in the book that seemed to indicate that there was some sort of immunological response in mice 
when given a GMO pea, and that was an independent study with absolutely no biotech funding. And that scientist was attacked hard, and he basically left the field. And he's a well-regarded and highly respected uh, scientist across, you know, many, many opinions, whether or not you're pro or anti-GMO. So the question is, is the science there? I think that there's plenty of science that some scientists are trying to do about these pesticides for sure. Have we done the studies on the actual GMO itself? Not really. And that's really what I heard was an ongoing concern from many scientists, which is that we're in a research recession. It's very hard to get funding. It's almost impossible to get funding to ask some of these questions that you're asking. And you can get a lot more funding if you want to do cool stuff, rearranging traits and making GMOs than you can asking whether or not these are safe. If there is a research recession and there's an inability to be able to conclusively prove that there are harms being done to humans by GMO crops, and we know that the scientific studies that are being done uh, by, say, the NAS are in part funded by big corporations, and th that should at least cast some doubt in our minds as to whether or not they are accurate. Where we are left in terms of public opinion and also public policy is at the level of just labeling, right? In, in the state of Vermont, they had passed a law that actually went on the books. Your state, Maine, uh, the state where I am, and Connecticut had both passed prospective laws that would go into effect if a certain number of other states in the region would pass similar laws, and then they'd have to label their products as having GMOs or not having GMOs. What do you think about that notion, just starting with labeling, and then what's happened since as the federal government got involved in the labeling question? Yeah. So labeling, it's a it's a nice notion in, 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 the, in the sense that if we can put a non-GMO label on things or now we have to use our smart, smartphones to ascertain whether or not something is a GMO, I guess that tells us something. But based on my journey through this book, I didn't feel like it told us enough because you can have a non-GMO crop and that doesn't mean that we didn't spray the bejesus out of it with pesticides. You know, in the in the early part of the book, which is called Flyover Country, I spend uh, a good deal of time with a young, smart, totally affable farmer named Zach Honeycutt in Nebraska. And I was shocked, and I think most of my readers have been shocked when I tell them all of the pesticides that he uses, all the chemicals he uses on his crops. And the fact that it's actually no one's job in this country to look at the synergistic effect of all of those chemicals together. And I don't think that labeling will give us the kind of transparency that we need. So then bring it back to New England, if you would. You, you've been around the world asking these questions. Um, here in, in our region, we have these six states, and maybe you can count New York in this, that seem of a like mind, at least in terms of questions of whether or not genetically engineered or GMO foods should be part of our diet. All of the state legislatures have at least considered some sort of labeling law. Do you think it's realistic that in the absence of some of the big changes in agriculture that you're calling for, that we might be able to more locally source food in regions that have some of these same concerns? I mean, would that provide the food necessary for, say, a New England region or, or a Northeast region if, if we so chose? I think there's absolutely great hope with our farmers. I uh, live in 
um, the cold, uh, rocky soiled state of Maine, the farmers in this state uh, are growing things in greenhouses. My family, we completely changed how we ate after I got this diagnosis. And we source all of our food locally now. And I think that many more of us could go the same way. And I delineate in the book ways to do that. And this notion that eating organic and local is so much more expensive. And I break that down and show actually how you can actually save money eating this way. It just requires some more planning and thought. Caitlin, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you. It was a pleasure. We're back with Vermont Public Radio reporter Kathleen Masterson. Kathleen, as we just heard from Caitlin Shatterly, the science about whether GMOs are bad for us or not is not really clear. What have you been hearing from scientists? Most of the scientists that I've spoken with say that, you know, they're really... Um, is no known harm in the foods yet. They're using uh, genes and they're inserting genes that we have studied and the companies have studied. So the scientists I've spoken with haven't expressed any concern about any existing food. The, the other thing that a lot of advocates point to, though, is not just the foods themselves, but the fact that they're engineered to withstand herbicide and pesticide use. And what's really unclear and maybe scary to an awful lot of humans is how much uh, pesticide, how much herbicide is actually getting into our food stream. What, what do you know about that? And that's a fascinating issue. And if you do a quick Google, you can find every single side on that issue. But some of the more um, scientifically supported studies that I've read suggest that initially we did see a decrease in use of insecticide. For example, BT corn has reduced the amount that farmers have to spray to kill pests, to kill insects. If you look at herbicides, which are sprayed to kill weeds, there's some indication that in recent years, the use of Roundup, which is that common herbicide used with the um, glyphosate-resistant corn, that actually seems to be creeping up because, as some scientists have predicted, there's a growing resistance of weeds to Roundup. And interestingly, that really was one of the reasons that scientists developed some of these crops was to be able to spray less harmful pesticides. In, in the scientific community, there has been an increasing look at a link between glyphosate and cancer, and it's been listed as probably a human carcinogen, but that field is really still evolving. One of the things that Caitlin Shetterly says in her book is that she takes trips to the Midwest where farming with genetically modified crops is just a part of everyday life. You spend a lot of time reporting from that part of the world for uh, another journalism collaborative, Harvest. I guess I'm wondering what you learned about that world. Well, one of the things I think of right away is how, from my perspective and talking to many farmers, how difficult it is to make changes within crops. Our infrastructure is really set up to process corn and soybeans, for example. So if you're a farmer, you would call up your local seed guy and say, what do you have this year? Maybe you'd say, last year I had a real flooding in this area. Do you have anything that's good in, in real wet soil? And so that relationship has influenced a lot of what farmers grow. But what I was getting at with the infrastructure is that even I talked to a researcher who was trying to get more canola used as a crop rotation, right, something you would plant off-season to kind of let the fields rejuvenate. And people, 
one of the struggles farmers had is not that they weren't willing to try it, but then they had to drive that, I think, six hours to get it somewhere where you could sell it. So one of the inherent challenges that I think a lot of people don't see is that it's not just people are growing these only because they're a commodity crop, but it's really hard to make changes when all of the equipment and all the combines and all the expense that you've built up uh, is meant to grow corn and soybeans. So that's sort of one basic level understanding there. And also when it comes to getting seeds, as I was getting at as well, it, it, it can be a lot harder is what I heard anecdotally from farmers to find seeds that are non-GMO. Um, some farmers who are interested in potentially going organic or um, trying a non-GMO variety, access to those seeds can be really challenging uh, just in terms of a limited number. They may sell out earlier um, or there may be less access. I guess I'm wondering, Kathleen, if if you think it's it's feasible from the work that you've done to be able to grow enough non-GMO food in a place like New England and New York, maybe, that we could feed ourselves. We wouldn't have to worry about getting all this stuff in from the Midwest. Is it is it even possible? You know, it's a good question. All the farmers that I know here certainly supplement with buying outside grain. So I think embedded in that question is, what do you want to eat? <laughs> if you want to eat non-GMO and, and everybody was willing to live off uh, sweet potatoes and sweet corn, that that would be relatively doable. I don't know how much volume we could grow here because um, we are limited, as you mentioned, by time and by soil. So I think it would take a little bit more research to discover, but certainly I think changing the system would be very, very challenging for a whole lot of reasons in the supply chain from where we can even get the seeds all the way down to, you know, space to grow them. Kathleen Masterson is our reporter at Vermont Public Radio. Kathleen, thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. Great to speak with you, John. Thanks. You can find links to Kathleen Masterson's reporting and Caitlin Shetterly's book on our website, nextnewengland.org. Coming up, a police department that's offering people with opioid addiction help instead of jail. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and global warming. The opioid addiction crisis in New England has physicians, community caregivers, and addiction treatment professionals scrambling to respond. Police departments are responding as well. Many have added the overdose rescue drug called Narcan to their tool belts. Others have stepped up efforts to prosecute heroin dealers. But in Gloucester, Massachusetts, there's a program that flips policing on its head to help addicts find treatment. Rhode Island Public Radio's Kristen Gourlay says that to understand the evolution of police attitudes on this issue, You have to go back several years. Just ask Annette. She doesn't want to use her last name. 20 years ago, she was in crisis. She was drinking. Her daughter had been taken away. And one night, she couldn't take it anymore. Before you know it, I was at the top of the staircase. And I was trying to make myself fall down a very steep staircase um, so that I maybe break my neck and just never wake up again. Annette says the police came. They told her to get back inside or they'd arrest her. Annette says they gave her a $25 fine for disobeying an order. They didn't ask if she was suicidal, didn't call an ambulance. And today I realized that I was asking for help. I was looking for help. I was crying for help, and I I needed help. Eventually she got that help, and today she works in the mental health and substance abuse field. 
But help could have come sooner had police had more awareness or training in the needs of people with substance abuse disorders. I think today police officers, um, teachers, parents should have some sort of knowledge about mental illness and substance abuse because today children at an earlier age are starting to drink, are starting to smoke, are starting to use drugs. That knowledge is more crucial than ever as communities around the country struggle with addiction to heroin and other opioids. In one community, Gloucester, Massachusetts, police realized finding and arresting addicts wasn't working. People were overdosing and dying in record numbers. So they decided to try something totally different. It started with Steve Lesnikowski. He was living in his car in California, of all places, at the time. He was addicted to heroin. One afternoon, he was waiting for his dealer when he saw this news on his phone. May of last year, Gloucester Police Department put a press release out saying anybody that wants help, can come into our department. As a heroin user, Lesnikowski would never have voluntarily walked into a police station all the way across the country and asked for help treating his addiction to an illegal drug. But he was ready to try anything. You have to be in this absolute desperate state and just devoid of humanity to really change. And that's that's where I was. Like, right? I, I, I didn't know when I was going to die, but it was going to happen. And I was dead inside. And I saw this beacon of light all the way across the country. And I was like, why not? So they flew him out to Massachusetts. When he landed, he walked into the downtown police department in this busy fishing village north of Boston. Police welcomed him and called an ambulance. And then uh, that morning, I got to meet the police chief Campanello. And so he told me told me some things that this would be the last time I had to do this and that... Um, Gloucester Police Department stands behind me. I was like, okay, cool. (laughs) An officer waited with Lesnikowski, made sure he got into detox and then into treatment. He was the first to take advantage of Gloucester's offer. And it was around that time Gloucester businessman John Rosenthal heard Gloucester's then-police chief Leonard Campanello talking about his idea to help addicts instead of arrest them on the radio. Uh, He was going to welcome anyone with the disease of addiction, with or without their drugs, into the Gloucester Police Department and help them into treatment versus jail. Um, I called him up uh, literally while he was on the air. And and he called me back as soon as he got off the air and, uh, and said, let's have breakfast. The Police Assisted Addiction Recovery Initiative, or PARI, was born. The Police Assisted Addiction Recovery Initiative starts with the premise that we cannot arrest our way out of the epidemic of, uh, of opioid overdosing. From his position in the real estate business, Rosenthal brought the clout and money of the local business community. The Gloucester police chief brought the willingness of a police department in crisis. Rosenthal says they've worked out deals with hospitals, treatment centers, ambulance companies, and others to get addicts into treatment for free. The funds come from a patchwork of sources. So PARI raises private money. And we do everything from help travel expenses like for Steve or, uh, you know, sometimes uh, halfway houses for other people that need it. Um, and to date, the majority of dollars that we've used are from drug dealer asset forfeiture funds. 
That's the money police seize when they arrest dealers. More than 100 police departments across the country have since adopted the PARI model, all in less than a year and a half. And in Gloucester, the response has been huge. In Gloucester alone, uh, 510 people have come into the Gloucester Police Department in the last 16 months uh, and all have been placed into treatment. And like Steve, all have been told, if you relapse, come back. This willingness to help addicts when they're ready has taken root in nearby Arlington, Massachusetts, too. Police Chief Frederick Ryan says they also realized that when it came to opioid addiction and overdose, what they had been doing wasn't saving any lives. Uh, previously, we gave them handcuffs, and we were bringing people into the booking window who really belonged in a healthcare setting. And now we're, we're providing a more sophisticated and um, um, empathetic approach to, uh, to dealing with people who, who need help and not incarceration. They've adopted the PARI model, like Gloucester, and Ryan says the community appreciates the change. You know, a lot of folks have, have really sort of said, ah, finally the cops get it. They're not going to prosecute their way out of this problem. They're treating people with the dignity and the emp empathy and the respect that they deserve. So it's been very, very rewarding. Arlington has taken the program a step further. Ryan says police keep a list of people who have survived an overdose. They go down the list, knocking on doors, offering treatment right then and there. And if the person isn't ready, police give them the overdose rescue drug Narcan, just in case. Pari hasn't yet come to Rhode Island, but most police here carry Narcan, and there's a new requirement that all police take something called mental health first aid training. It's designed to help police understand more about mental health and substance abuse disorders and respond with something other than handcuffs when possible. That's Kristen Gourlay of Rhode Island Public Radio. You can find more of her reporting on their health blog, The Pulse. As a quick footnote to that story, the police chief responsible for starting the PARI program is out of a job. Leonard Campanello was placed on paid leave and then allowed to retire after an investigation into allegations regarding his behavior and statements made to investigators. Officials said that none of the alleged misconduct involved the PARI program itself. The man we heard from earlier, Steve Lesnikowski, the very first person to go through the program, talked to WBUR about the chief. I'm just not really not qualified to speak on anything that he's done. I think that the mission will still go forward and that all of this is bigger than one man. At the end of the day, there's been some great work done. Coming up, a new cultural district tells the story of the native people of Martha's Vineyard. And we'll consider the complicated legacy of hero villain, Miles Standish. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Melville Charitable Trust, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of housing and homelessness. Even though the Aquina Wampanoag tribe has lived on Martha's Vineyard for more than 10,000 years, tourists who flock to the island don't always know about or get to experience this rich history. But now people from the tribe and the town of Aquina are working together to tell that story and to boost the local economy, 
with a new state-designated cultural district. Andrea Shea from WBUR and The Artery brings us the story. On a clear day, you can see the Elizabeth Islands from the Gay Head Cliffs in Aquina. On Laure Francois, a professor of American history in France, took a bus from the ferry about 17 miles away after reading about this spot on a blog. She's taken by the views, but she's even more excited by what she just learned from a sign on the lookout's edge. Well, I didn't know, for example, that this was Native American land and that all the shops in the area are owned by uh, the tribe, so that's pretty impressive. The Aquina Wampanoag tribe still owns nearly 500 acres of the land in Aquina. We're still out here, you know, like there's not too many tribes that are here in the state. It's one of uh, survival and determination and it's a very unique story. Derwood Vanderhoop, planner for the Aquina Wampanoag tribe of Gayhead, shows me around. Walking from the lookout is the Aquina Shop restaurant, which is a family-run place actually owned by some of my brothers and and other family that's been here for decades as uh, about seven or eight other shops there's also a heritage kiosk it's a small modern shed with bark siding inside there's traditional music maps wampanoag artifacts and a few tourists up until a few decades ago, Vanderhoop says fishing and agriculture provided livelihoods for the Wampanoag. Now it's all about tourism. Turns out that economic driver is actually nothing new. And it's on inside. Inside the historic brick Gayhead Light, which is near the shops, lighthouse keeper Richard Skidmore shows me a photo from the late 1800s. It's of tourists who traveled here by steamship. This particular picture of the dock um, that no longer exists and a uh, ox cart with um, some fancy dressed people in it and then a Wampanoag fellow who's going to lead them right up to where we are right now, the Gayhead Light. Skidmore says the natives were an attraction, but also savvy business people. They owned inns and restaurants. Then the lighthouse keeper quotes a line from a brochure of the time. Come visit a village of red men, meaning the Wampanoag tribe here in what was then Gatehead, and see the most magnificent light on the East Coast. Now the federally recognized Wampanoag tribe is hoping to attract more modern-day tourists and islanders to the Gayhead Light and the other sites along the perimeter of a dead-end drive known as Aquina Circle. That's why they formed a planning group with the town of Aquina to apply for state recognition as a cultural district. There are 34 of these walkable districts in Massachusetts. They receive grant money and support to elevate an historic area's story, bring in more more visitors and spur economic development. Across from the lighthouse is the Aquina Cultural Center and Museum. Program director Linda Coombs hopes the new cultural district will help clarify a few common misperceptions. People ask us all the time, so, you know, how far back does your, you know, Indian heritage go? And, and we look at them and it's like, um, all the way? I mean, that's my answer, you know. 
Coombs explains how Aquinnah was one of the 69 original villages of the Wampanoag Nation. When the English arrived in the 1600s, they pushed the tribe to the very end of the island. Its members struggled to survive and today are dedicated to preserving their land, language, and culture. Tobias Vanderhoop is the chairman of the Wampanoag Tribal Council. Hopefully this project that we're working on can break down those barriers and we can get that story out there. Apparently the project is also breaking down barriers between the tribe and the town of Aquina. The two groups have been butting heads over the Wampanoag's long-running efforts to build a casino on Martha's Vineyard. This is one of the first times they're working together. That's not lost on Anita Walker, executive director of the Massachusetts Cultural Council. That's the state agency that granted the new cultural district designation. We are so excited that we now in Massachusetts have the very first in the country cultural district that is a joint project of a town and a tribe. Walker says everyone needed to be on board. Town Administrator Adam Wilson says now the town and the tribe will work together to map out a course for the area's future. There's actually two governments in the little town of Aquina of 400 year-round residents. The beautiful bluffs at the end of Aquinas Circle are seen as the economic and spiritual core of the town. Last year, it was depleted of energy when two storefronts were vacant. Berta Welch recalls the drop in the number of tourist buses a few years back. And it was like ghost town up here. That's one reason why Welch got involved in the cultural district effort. The tribal member sells wind chimes, wampum jewelry, and other crafts in the Stone Creek gift shop her mother opened on the bluffs 75 years ago. Welch has worked here her whole life and is enthusiastic about the tribe-town collaboration. She says getting everyone to see eye to eye isn't always easy. Which the town and tribe have not had a lot of experience in doing together. So it was an exercise. We want to be protective of our culture too. It's not about merchandising it, exploiting it. And although I don't think that was really a struggle, I just think it's something that needed to be ironed out. And there's plenty more for the planning team to agree on, including improved signage, walkways, landscaping, programming, and advertising. Tribal Council Chairman Tobias Vanderhoop thinks it'll all be worth it. At times, people have an idea of what Native people should be or what we are or that maybe we faded away. And he says all people belong to a place. For our people, we're still in the place that we belong. The place, he says, that runs through their blood. That's Andrea Shea reporting. This music is by the Blackbrook Singers of Gayhead on Martha's Vineyard. Whether it's Civil War generals depicted in town square statues in the South, or the controversy over Andrew Jackson on the $20 bill, Americans are grappling with the complicated history of iconic figures. New England is no exception. At Yale University, students have protested a dorm named after John C. Calhoun, a former U.S. Senator, Vice President, and supporter of slavery. In the state of Vermont and the city of Cambridge, Mass., Columbus Day is now called Indigenous Peoples Day. 
Reporter Annie Sinsabal wonders if the same scrutiny should be applied to a man seen as a hero to the pilgrims, Miles Standish. A few months ago, I moved to Massachusetts. Pretty early on, I could tell that people here really love the pilgrims. They're everywhere. Pilgrim Nuclear Station, Pilgrim Bank, the Mass Turnpike logo, it's a pilgrim hat. All this affection for the pilgrims confused me. I don't know, what were you told? I was told lots of different things, and here's what stuck. The pilgrims were religious zealots who didn't give a damn about anything or anyone but themselves. They made nice with the Native Americans when it suited their needs, but they also killed Native Americans. They were righteous and selfish, and they had guns. So when I moved to Massachusetts, I started reading about the pilgrims, and I got even more confused, especially by Captain Miles Standish. As far as I knew, he was the pilgrims' hired gun, their one-man army, a Native American killer. If that's what he was, why is Miles Standish all up in my Google Maps? There's the Miles Standish State Forest, Standish Streets and Standish Roads. There's even a 116-foot-tall Miles Standish Monument in Duxbury. The monument is, in fact, one of the tallest monuments in the United States dedicated to one person. Which is kind of funny, because Miles Standish the man was actually really short. His nickname, Captain Shrimp. And he was a shrimp with a temper. One colonist described Standish as a little chimney that is soon fired. So what's there to celebrate about Miles Standish? What did he ever do to deserve all of this love? I'm Miles Standish. Enter Miles Standish. Born on the Isle of Man and grew up in Lancashire. and then Or the man who plays Miles at Plymouth Plantation, a living history museum in Massachusetts. I'm a soldier by trade. Courage and bravery are the ability to act, even though one is afraid. Do you feel frightened living here? I'm afraid of nothing but God. So there's there's nothing to be afraid of here? There's nothing that keeps well, you awake at night? or Not for my person. Uh, there are things that are dangerous here, certainly. There are wolves and lions. But you have no fear of the native people here. So you, you've had no conflicts with the Native Americans, the native people here? Uh, there was some trouble last year. The trouble happened in Wessagusset, another English colony in Massachusetts. One day, William Bradford, the governor of Plymouth Colony, got word, or should I say he heard a rumor, that the Massachusetts tribe was planning an attack, first against the Wessagusset settlement and then against Plymouth. Master Bradford sent me up with some, a gang of men with uh, instructions to take care of it. We did indeed do so. Taking care of it meant Miles went to Wessagusset. There, he gathered two Massachusetts leaders and a teenage boy. He lured them into a storage house. Then, without warning, Miles attacked. I took the opportunity to grasp and seize the knife from the man's his own neck and stabbed him in the heart with it. Outside, a bloody battle exploded. Many were killed. And then we did uh, soak a sheet in one's blood to fly as an ancient upon our fort. Miles placed more than a bloody flag on the fort. He also placed a victim's head on a pike. Word of the attack spread fast. Many tribes fled for swamps and remote islands out of fear they would be next. 
The West Augusta incident shocked me. It hardly seemed like a reason to name a forest after someone. But walking around Plymouth Plantation, I find out people here actually really like Miles. They appreciate the job he's doing. It keeps my family safe, and so I can sleep more easier. And I sort of get it. The pilgrims were an ocean away from home, surrounded by wolves and lions. Miles protected them. He built a fort complete with cannons. He ensured their survival. While many Plymouth residents found his tactics overly brutal and sometimes unchristian, there was no denying the man was effective and the colony was thankful. After Wissagusset, Miles went on to be elected first commander of Plymouth Colony every year of his life. As he got older, he stopped leading expeditions. He settled down, farmed, got married, had seven kids. He even helped establish the town of Duxbury. And then, in 1656, he died. You'd think it ends there. He's dead, but no. I really learned about people's affection for Miles when I heard they opened his grave. In 1858, two centuries after Miles' death, Henry Longfellow wrote a saucy pilgrim love poem, The Courtship of Miles Standish. In the old colony days, in Plymouth, the land of the pilgrims, strode with martial air Miles Standish, the Puritan captain, clad in double... Miles Standish became something of an instant historical celebrity. That's Patrick Brown, a historian at Boston University. Patrick says people in Duxbury got caught up in Standish fever. To make sure Miles was truly buried in their town, they dug him up in 1889. They found the skeleton of a, of a woman. Uh, they dug a little further to the side and found the skeleton of a man. And that was about it. The weirdest part of the story isn't that they dug Miles up. It's that they dug him up again in 1891 to make sure it was really him. And then again? In 1931, the town selectmen became convinced that Miles Standish's remains should be more or less permanently preserved. So they dug Miles Standish up. Or what was left of Miles Standish. And placed his corpse in a hermetically sealed copper box, which was then put in a cement chamber. Miles Standish, preserved for eternity. This time, they included a time capsule with dated newspapers and letters, just in case someone ever wants to dig him up again. Is it common to open a grave once, twice, three times? Not uh, completely unheard of, I would say. Are other historical figures, um, are their graves opened? There are a few presidents, uh, I think, who have been exhumed. But no, this is, it's, it's not, not a common thing at all. To me, this just sounds crazy, right? But Patrick told me you need to understand the context. The first two exhumations happened shortly after the Civil War, the third during the Depression. In both cases, the country was ripped apart. So Americans searched for something, anything to believe in, and they looked to their roots. And Patrick says they found those roots in Miles, the first defender of the American people. Miles was part of a moment in time that many Americans feel connected to today, the Mayflower. This was a group of pioneers seeking freedom in a new world. It's a heartwarming origin myth that we celebrate every year at Thanksgiving and every day in Massachusetts, with all the pilgrim stuff everywhere. At Plymouth Plantation, I spoke to a Wampanoag man named Philip Wynne. I cannot go by a store or a laundromat without Standish this, Standish that, Bradford this. 
and I can't help but go, uh, they put their name on everything that was ours, the buildings and all of this stuff. So I can't help but inherently feel resentful for that. But it, that always fuels me to learn more, you know, and look at different perspectives. Philip said if we're going to keep telling the pilgrim story, that's fine, but we need to tell it right. I recently visited the Miles Standish Monument in Duxbury. It's 10 stories high, and at the top there's a 14-foot statue of Miles. But there's one thing that isn't here. No, but there's no sign. There's no, like, you know, usually you go up to a monument and there's, um, like, a sign talking about what that, who the person is and what they did, and there's nothing here. There's a trend today where we're questioning our heroes of the past. Sometimes we take names off buildings, we remove faces from bills, and maybe in those cases, that's the right answer. I don't think the Miles Standish Monument should come down, but I do think there should be a sign, because if we're going to celebrate this man with a 116-foot monument, we should know who he was and what he did. If I had a chance to write this sign, this is what I would say. Captain Miles Standish, sometimes known as Captain Shrimp, born 1584, died 1656. The Pilgrims hired Miles Standish to serve as their military advisor in the New World. Upon arriving on the Mayflower, Standish bravely led 16 men to explore the land around Plymouth and find a place to settle. He also signed the Mayflower Compact, and during the first difficult winter, he comforted and nursed the ill. Not one for playing defense, Standish favored a more proactive military style. And by proactive, we mean brutal. He murdered some Massachusetts men, but he also allied and traded with the Wampanoag men. In short, things were really complicated, just as they are today. Oh, and if this sign inspires you to open the man's grave, please don't. It's time to let Miles Standish rest in peace. That story was reported by Annie Sinsabaugh as a part of the Spring 2016 Transom Story Workshop. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrea Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Our digital editor is Heather Brandon. Production help this week from John Keimel, Chris Albertine, and Dan Mozzie. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.